Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target's Red Card Debit Card, you'll save 5% every Target trip, on top of everyday low prices, in-store and online. Debit Red Card links from your existing bank account. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. It's a primal, wild freedom. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. Hmm, no. You know, we really lost our stride at the end there. Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, special guest scholar and musician Yuri Campbell returns to review the key lessons we learned from Nate's discussion with Elijah Wald about his book, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Nate and Yuri evaluate Wald's boldly revisionist take on Robert Johnson and debate whether or not Wald succeeded in reassessing Johnson from the perspective of his peers and contemporaries in contrast with the romantic myth of Johnson long propagated in the folk and rock communities. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're doing a special What Have We Learned episode once again with my friend and colleague, Dr. Yuri Campbell. Yuri, welcome back. Thanks, Nate. It's good to be here. Good, good, good. So today we're going to look back on uh, Elijah Wald's book, Escaping the Delta, and my interview that we did with him. Um, and I, I, we picked this up, this book and that episode because... Other than Ed Ward, who basically taught me everything I know about analyzing music as a cultural history, Elijah Wald's books, this one and How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, which we'll talk about in the next episode of What Have We Learned, really expanded my mind um, because it took – it's a revisionist take on what has been just a grossly romanticized history of Robert Johnson and the Delta Blues. And I found Wald's attempt to reevaluate Johnson – from the perspective of his peers and the contemporaries, basically the black African, the African-American blues fan of the 1930s. And 
rather than from the perspective of generally white blues fans of the 1960s to now. So it just totally blew my mind. I tried to capture that. Wald's a great interview. But the main point that the book put across was that Robert Johnson was just a human being who sang and played beautifully. He wasn't a mythical figure. There probably wasn't really a devil at the crossroads. He wasn't an a country bumpkin. He was a sophisticated, sharp-dressed cat who traveled widely, who listened to all kinds of music, not just what he heard live in the Delta, but listened to the radio, listened to records, and learned. So having said all that, how do you think we did, Yuri? Did, did, did I get that across in the interview with Wald? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the book and the interview with Wald, you know, uh, really helped to flesh out, you know, the, the basic ideas that you were just talking about and really helped to make it clear uh, that, you know, the blues artists of the, the late 20s and early 30s, even the early 20s, really, I mean, that these were, in fact, sophisticated people, that uh, they were professionals, that they were participating in, uh, you know, the creation of, of new cultural forms, new sort of musical expressions, uh, while at the same time, uh, trying to please their audiences who had, you know, fairly sophisticated demands and varying demands, right? So that the artists themselves, you know, as you suggested, had to have a sort of wide-ranging set of, of skills. They had to have been aware of both, you know, sort of traditional musical expressions and, uh, you know, like in, in the case of the blues, you know, things like hollers and moans and that sort of thing, while also being aware of, of popular music uh, which, you know, by the 1930s, you're talking about artists like Duke Ellington and uh, Louis Armstrong and, and, and that sort of thing, people that are appearing in films, they're on the radio, etc. And so the picture of blues as this sort of backwater expression of, of rural culture uh, coming from people who were simply oppressed and trapped and, you know, on some level, were expected to be ignorant and poverty stricken. It just didn't hold, you know. I mean, you couldn't couldn't be a successful blues artist if you traveled the country in rags uh, and showed up at, at you know varying venues, uh, unable to relate to uh, modernizing audiences. And I think I think I think the book captures that really well. And I thought your interview with Wald uh, uh, made that clear. Cool. And one thing that I think that I'm still sort of struggling with, and I've read other writers that, that have responded to Wald and sort of rejected this, but there's a, this notion, like you and I are both Gen X rock fans who grew up with the whole myth of the romanticized myth of Robert Johnson and the blues. And, and a key element of that is treating the blues as if it's some ancient form that goes all the way back to Africa, that goes back hundreds of years when the best evidence seems to be that elements of the blues, like the blue notes, the flatted sevenths and flatted thirds, might have done – that might be true of those elements. Um, but the blues form, formalized by W.C. Handy, that's just not the case. It was a very modern form in the 1910s. I mean it was the hottest, newest thing, and when it hit records – in the 20s by black artists. And the key thing, a point Wald makes that I left out of the book 
or the interview that I didn't get to is that the first people to record blues songs were white artists. And I think that's pretty important. And those people have been pretty well erased. It's sort of in a, you know, kind of the way Bix Spiderback or the original Dixieland Jazz Band have been, or Paul Whiteman even, have been not erased but marginalized in the telling of history. And it's kind of karma. They got overblown in their time, and they got too much credit in their day, and people like Louis Armstrong didn't get enough credit. But since then, things have tilted completely the other way, and white artists dabbling in these mediums tend to get completely erased, at least people like Marion Harris. And But I think the key thing is that this was – this was a new form and this was very modern music. And even though Johnson was kind of a latecomer and, you know, was a decade recording almost a full decade after people like Charlie Patton, he was still wrestling with the late, the newest and the latest. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I you know, you made several points there. I mean, I think that Johnson himself, I think his, his sort of blues approach was, almost anachronistic or it was kind of out of season right i mean like part of the the part of his lack of commercial success or, or widespread notoriety during his time was that blues wasn't really ascendant at that point and and for whatever reason he primarily recorded blues songs um and so you know that 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 shows you that blues was something that was being presented to audiences and developed by artists within uh, a flow of cultural production that was that was new, it was happening, it was modern. Uh, to to talk about the question of you know uh, blues as some sort of uh, survival from Africa, I I thought it was. It was most interesting when he's talking about, you know, W.C. Handy, and I think it was Ma Rainey. I could be wrong. Yeah, it was Ma Rainey. I think it was Ma Rainey, each of whom had these stories of their travels as professional uh, musicians who come across, you know, now forgotten uh, in in the case of W.C. Handy, never known. I mean, he, he tells the story of being at a train station and, meeting this, you know, local guitar player who plays in this crazy style, you know, as though it was this innovative, uh, you know, daring uh, approach to the guitar. And he had himself had never heard it, right? And, and, and Ma Rainey hears a vocalization from a woman that's playing at a venue she's at and has to ask what it is and is told that it's the blues or whatever. So, you know, while it's clear that, there are going to be differing styles and differing locales during that time that were kind of separated by physical space and a lack of access to technology, you know, during the, 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 the many years that came before recording. And, and that as a result, you might have people that played what they considered to be the blues in one place. And then in another place, they might use the term blues to refer to a slightly different or even a very different style. It's clear that once you start getting close to the, the recording era, or at least it, it seems close as a result of those two sort of anecdotes, you know, the Ma Rainey and the W.C. Handy anecdote, it seems clear that the blues wasn't something that was widely agreed upon, that can be easily defined uh, or, or easily uh, explained, and that it really comes into its own as what we know 
the blues to be, which is a sort of family of approaches that are primarily propagated by African Americans, that happens, you know, during the era of recordings, and it and it stems in part, it, it appears, from uh, a need to establish genre or to slap a label on uh, a musical approach so that it can be sold as this this new thing that's going to fuel a craze. Right? I I think that that is a prof- that's a profound you know, sort of revision. That's a profound uh, observation about how commerce works and all that kind of thing, as well as cultural production. And in our conversations preparing for this show, one of the points that you made that I thought was really interesting was sort of what made Robert Johnson so perfect to be mythologized after the fact. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I, you know, if some Robert Johnson didn't have a lot of recordings. I mean, Walt note he, he provides that list of of artists from the the late twenties and thirties, and how many different sides they recorded. You know, you have people like Bill Bill Brunzi who recorded hundreds of sides, right? And Johnson has a relatively small number of recordings. They weren't popular at that time, and so you know he was kind of obscure. I mean, or very obscure, really until he gets rediscovered in the 60s in this in a, in a new context right like as i was saying before he was operating in the in the in, in his own time frame uh, as somebody who was kind of out of step with the times or was kind of behind the times even though you know he he was appreciated by some uh, you know music lovers etc but by the 60s you know you have this kind of explosion of interest in folk music uh, and which you know, the people who were folk fans had some fairly strong feelings about uh, what was acceptable, what was real, you know. They didn't want electrification of the instruments in many instances. And so Robert Johnson is a purveyor of this kind of stripped down, you know, what they might have considered to be primitive and therefore uh, authentic blues. He, he he met the needs of those people, you know, of the of the audiences in the '60s in ways that other artists weren't likely to to do. I mean, he, as I said, he was obscure, so they could discover him. He he seemed to be have a sort of pureness to him, and he comes with this whole mythology, right? Of and, and this kind of dark sound, you know, these songs about hellhounds and selling your soul at the crossroads, and all these kind of stories. And so he was this kind of perfect fit. You know, he was ready to be discovered and ready to be repackaged, really. It was kind of like a blank slate that could be fit within the context and within uh, the tastes and, and, and needs of the, the folk and uh, real blues type audiences of the 60s. Yeah, and, and he's he's also dead. So unlike his contemporaries of like Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf, he wasn't out there hustling and, and recording electric music and everything else. But let's hear uh, a song, possibly the most apocal Robert Johnson song as far as the myth. This is Robert Johnson, Hellhound on My Trail. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-
And that was one of the songs that started all the trouble. Uh, that was Robert Johnson, Hellhound on My Trail. So here you have a guy who sort of built this mythos around himself with a couple of recordings. Although, like Wald points out, if you look at it in the context of popular blues at the time, you had a much more popular figure and Petey Wheatstraw coming out of St. Louis who either named himself after a folktale or created a legend that became a folktale of P.D. Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law. And so, you know, and that guy had, you know, a ton of sides and they're all very samey. And so it's hard for us to go back and evaluate P.D. Wheatstraw in a fair way. And I talk about with Wald quite a bit, but, you know, if you're a young Brian Jones or somebody like that in England and getting a hold of these books and these records, like John Hammond compiled the Columbia King of the Delta Blues volume one and volume two in the early 60s, and to get this, you know, artifact, this record in your hands, with, along with a book that tells a story of this young man who was a no talent and he was hanging around with Sunhouse and, and, and trying to follow along and people laughed at him. And then he comes back, you know, six months or a year later and suddenly he can outplay everybody. And so this myth that he sold his soul to the devil really had a power uh, that, that took on a life of its own in the, in the minds of people like the Rolling Stones and, and Eric Clapton and rock fans all around the world. So um, you know, and you can't discount that. That's a real thing. That was a, a real cultural force. But, you know, when Wald blows the smoke away, it's kind of funny in retrospect. And I really wish Robert Johnson had lived longer uh, just to see it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I would love to know what he would have made of all this. But well, it's 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's of course, utterly speculative, you know, and counterfactual. And, and there is no history to support it. But it's still fun to think about the idea of somebody like Robert Johnson, who did apparently have this hunger to succeed and this hunger to become uh, an effective entertainer and, and, and had talent, worked at it well enough to be recognized for his transformation as, as a sort of player and an entertainer. And it's fun to think about what he would have done if he had survived, you know, where he would have taken his, his, his art. You know, and in the same way that you know you have somebody like Muddy Waters, who, you know, had a, a wide-ranging set of tastes, but he picked up sticks and went to went to Chicago, and helped blow open a whole new scene. You know, so it, it's unfortunate that Johnson died, and in, in in that sense, I guess, I mean, his his legacy sort of fell into the the perfect storm. Of of uh, rediscovery and nostalgia and and that sort of thing. So he's not been forgotten, which is, which is good. No, definitely not. I mean, he's he's outlived everybody. And one one angle I didn't bring up with Wald, and Wald doesn't talk about, but the origin story of Robert Johnson is really close to another figure, a, a contemporary figure, which is Charlie Parker, who infamously, you know got a hold of a saxophone, learned a couple of scales and a song or two, and then tried to take the stage with some of the guys who played with Count Basie and got booted off the stage. Spends, you know, the next six months feverishly woodshedding every song in every key, comes back a year, year and a half later and blows everybody away. And in his case, it wasn't ascribed to the devil. It was ascribed to heroin, which causes no end of mystery. Right. You know, and so it's just funny that people – have this need to sort of mystify talent and hard work, which, um, 
you know, th that's a powerful combination. And most of us don't have that kind of talent. Like Robert Johnson supposedly could hear a song for the first time, remember it, play it back and play new chords he'd never heard before. If he heard the chord once, then he could figure it out from memory. And that to me is amazing, but it also takes hard work. But there's three points that, that you brought out that we're going to try to cover in the rest of this conversation. And the first one, and these are the things we learned from this conversation with Elijah Wald. And that's one, how commercial success works, the power of the audience and the vicissitudes of meeting and creating the audience needs and tastes. Point two is how innovation fuels or gets thwarted by commercial dynamics. And three, how context helps to define how the cultural product, meaning the music, is received. And this includes racial dynamics. So let's jump in there and talk about how does commercial success work? Because, you know, Elijah Wall tells this story in the book and kind of his epiphany came when he was teaching a music class about Robert Johnson and about the Delta Blues. And most of the students had heard of Robert Johnson, but he didn't start with Robert Johnson because he was teaching in historical order. So he starts with people like Skip James and Charlie Patton, who are Johnson's immediate precursors in Delta Blues. And the students are very eager to hear Robert Johnson. They're loving the Charlie Patton. They're loving the Skip James and, and Sunhouse and cannot wait to get to Robert Johnson. Then they get to Robert Johnson and there's this letdown because they're like, well, after hearing Charlie Patton and Skip James, you know, this kid's good, but he's not doing anything new. And that kind of blows Walt's head open and helps him understand why Robert Johnson wasn't popular in his own day. And it's interesting, you know, Johnson's kind of a secondary product. I mean, the recording industry only goes out to rural America when urban America starts buying radios. And so suddenly they say, oh, whoa, there's a bunch of poor white and black folks out in the country. And not just that, but there's also klezmer singers in the cities. And there's all these ethnic minorities all over the country that they can still sell records to because these people don't have access to radio or the radio is not playing their kind of music. And so that's where the Charlie Patton wave of artists gets in, gets in recording studios and sells records. Then there's a depression. The record industry dies. And 10 years later, it's sort of crawling back because of jukeboxes. And that's where Robert Johnson comes in. Is like some people thought, well, we can probably sell some records of some jukeboxes down in the Delta if we get this, this country kid playing some of this Delta blues. But it's in a context when people – you know, in the 20s, you know, Charlie Patton at all were not the bigs. The bigs in the 20s were Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong and Lonnie Johnson and Petey Wheatstraw and Tampa Red and Blind Lemon Jefferson. And it, and me mentioning Louis Armstrong is going to, I know people's hackles just got raised because we, we have this artificial bifurcation of jazz and blues and see them as two different things. But the next song I'm going to play is Bessie Smith with Louis Armstrong, who also sat in with Jimmy Rogers. I mean, and Bing Crosby. Louis Armstrong was all over the place in this right, era, right? Because jazz was pop music; it wasn't some sanctified elite art form at this point. Well, and, and jazz was also flowing out of a lot of the same sources that was, you know, powering the various innovations that were going along with blues. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Bessie Smith, and then I'll let you finish your point. And, and uh, this is Bessie Smith with Louis Armstrong, and they're doing the St. Louis Blues by W.C. Handy.
And that was Bessie Smith's version of uh, W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues with Louis Armstrong on the horn. And now go ahead and, and finish the point you're about to start. I, I, was, I was just noting that, you know, the blues at that time was flowing out of varying sort of, of musical traditions and musical practices and musical voices. And the and jazz was as well, and they often shared connections to those uh, those sources of inspiration. And so naturally, there are some connections between the two, especially since you know the blues is a is a sort of tag that gets put on varying styles, et cetera, and so it doesn't really necessarily provide a, an ironclad definition and ironclad set of boundaries around musical uh, approaches. Um, you know, in talking about, uh, you know, what we kind of can glean from, from escaping the Delta regarding commercial success or, you know, how commercial dynamics get applied to, you know, cultural products. It's, it, it seemed to me that, you know, one of the central, thrusts of what Wald wanted to, to bring out was that the audience is, a, is probably the most powerful source for the development of the product and the sort of innovation of the product, et cetera. The audience has, a, has this connection with all points of, of the commercial effort, right? I mean, You've got money being put into producing the product. You have artists that are putting their time and effort and their knowledge of, of varying audiences, especially during the period of time we're talking about where, you know, you had a lot of traveling musicians that had to be aware of their varying context uh, as they move from one town to the next to the next. And then and the, the money ends up, you know, somehow learning about these varying tastes, et cetera. Uh, and that's so that that's something that ties in with the mythology, right? Like the audience of the sixties has this need for a particular type of artist or, or a particular story, or if not a need, then a, a taste or an appetite for it. And, you know, that helps to drive, uh, uh, Robert Johnson's rediscovery and, and, and his explosive popularity and influence over, over that, you know, era. Whereas when he gets into the classroom with his students, they're from a, they're learning about it in, in a historical manner, as you pointed out. And so in that context, Robert Johnson doesn't sound all that different or all that exciting. Right. And so the excitement that comes with the mythology and comes with having uh, an artist that meets the needs of the sixties and, and of, you know, the, the fallout of the sixties isn't present with those students. And so that audience, you know, shows that each audience has its own sort of context and helps to formulate how commerce and, and commercial efforts to get the music out there, you know, is affected by those audience expectations, which doesn't get enough attention, you know, um, Absolutely. And, and I think the thing about Robert Johnson is he's somebody who broke out culturally and posthumously. But, but you know, he's right. way better known than his peers, Charlie Patton, his predecessors, you know, his mentors. Uh, 
Charlie Patton, Skip James, and also his peers like Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf, who had the big advantage of being able to live longer and, and adapt to new instruments and you know get a second chance in, in post-war Chicago. But it sort of reminds me of the Beatles and the rest of the British invasion. I mean, if you were to be teaching a class about British music in the 60s, I think a lot of kids today would probably focus on the Rolling Stones or the Kinks or the Who and be kind of like, you know, what's so special about the Beatles? And yet the Beatles had this enormous cultural breakout, uh, kind of unprecedented and kind of unmatched since then. But once you get down into the weeds of evaluating these things just as records, you know, they're great, but so are the Rolling Stones and so are the Kinks and, and so is Van Morrison. And so, you know, it, you, it's it's very hard to on a, just a purely aesthetic basis say why did this artist break out culturally and and other artists didn't because aesthetically they're pretty comparable and yet you know robert johnson's become not just a legend but a industry i mean there's new books about him coming out every year if somebody has a photograph of robert johnson or claims to have a photograph of robert johnson there's a bidding war and you know i think wald's a little cynical saying you know doesn't believe people listen to robert johnson that much that they maybe bought the cd back in the 90s or or maybe subscribe to his channel on, on Spotify, but don't actually play it that much. I don't really know. It's really hard for me to, you know, analyze. I mean, it seems like the long tail, you know, basically well, everybody's listening to Billie Eilish or whatever, and then a tiny minority of people are listening to everything else. And so it all kind of evens out. But yeah, I mean, at this point, I don't know how much listening time uh, relative to other artists, you know, that these, these old like first line blues recordings get i think that you know you do have these posthumous instances where you know you, the money the, the the record industry who has control over the recordings is they put together a product and they have a sense of the audience they have kind of a sense of you know how to get the, to distribute the product uh, a lot of times there are technological advances that occur and definitely with Robert Johnson, I mean, part of his enduring profile is that box set that came out on CD uh, in the late eighties or early nineties. It was tremendously successful. Yeah. Uh, went platinum. I think, yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. And, and, you know, when you, and, and the interesting thing is that that didn't fuel some rabid, uh, uh, readdress i mean this the cd the digital revolution the cd revolution eventually led to the reissuing of you know all kinds of stuff that had not been seen for years on tv but you didn't have uh, an explosion of interest in early blues following this tremendously successful robert johnson box set whereas like in 1980 danny sugarman's book no one here gets out alive uh explodes Jim Morrison into greater, you know, in the doors, into, into greater notoriety and, and, and monetary success than they had had when they were existing just, a, you know, 10 years earlier. But that also involved an explosion of interest in the 60s in general and, and, and kind of solidified this, this nostalgia-based uh, music industry approach of, you know, after X number of years, we can go back and resell this stuff to the next, you know, to these, this next generation of kids who are just too young to remember it. It's, it's going to be all brand new for them, you know? And, and so I, I, 
I think it's interesting that the Robert Johnson's box set was is such a crushing success, but Lonnie Johnson remains completely obscure, and he's and he's an unbelievable talent, right? Yeah, the wheat draw is is largely, you know, obscured and forgotten. For you know, even though you have some, you know, a minor cult figure like Dolomite making some exploitation film, you know, where he's, you know, marrying the devil's daughter and, and all this <laughs> kind of thing. There's a Petey Weedstraw character. But that's just, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's part of, of the commercial fray is kind of knowing your audience and picking your spots and knowing how to put the package together. Uh, and you know that was true back in the twenties, as it's true in the 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 dawn of the CD explosion, and it's it's true now, you know. And uh, I, I thought one of the things that Wald brought up that was interesting is that uh, you know towards the late twenties, the blues sort of goes into um, uh, hibernation as far as innovation is concerned, and part of that was because the industry kind of figured out how to sell it. They figured out what they could reliably present to the audiences. And so the money end of it was like, we're not interested in these idiosyncratic street corner, you know, blues singers or whatever. We've got this more, these more sophisticated artists. Uh, I think it was Leroy Carr uh, and Tampa Red, these, these duos that were smooth and, and could kind of, you know, uh, satisfy both urban audiences and, uh, and rural audiences at the same time. And so as a result of familiarity and the, the money and feeling like they, they had it, uh, they had it clock innovation kind of stops for a moment. I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, for sure. And it's also important to keep in mind that in the context so much of the innovation was happening on the uh, happening on the big band side, and so you know you had like a guitarist like Charlie Christian, who was definitely a student of Lonnie Johnson for sure, and probably was familiar with definitely Blind Lemon Jefferson and probably some of the Delta Blues guys. But he goes into jazz and ends up playing with Benny Goodman, you know. And ten years earlier, he right. probably would have been. Uh, following a career path similar to Lonnie Johnson, and you know I think this a lot of this comes to a point. You made in our pre pre show discussions, which is that humans need signposts, and that's where we get kind of these ironclad genres that get imposed on music after the fact. I mean, talk about that a little bit. Well, I I think that it's that just you know human cognition. If you want to like sort of get into that deeply, get into the weeds on that level. I mean, human cognition requires boundaries. You know, it requires differentiation and and it, therefore a best classification, you know, and genre is a way of using that sort of very human cognitive tendency to classify things. It's a way of selling, you know, an item or a product saying like, you know, over here are your records. And then within this bin of records here, we have some genres. It, it, it's a shorthand. It's very useful to have things like stereotypes. I mean, we often denigrate stereotypes because there are some obvious uh, problems with, with relying too heavily on stereotypes. And 
it's not not least of which is that the people being stereotyped are easily marginalized and etc but stereotypes are still useful there's some truth to stereotypes there are some truth there's truth to you know easy classification such as genre and that sort of thing and it's it it's it's so useful that we continue to do it even though if you once you get into the genre and you're interested in it and you get to know you know the blues or whatever if you become invested in it then you start looking at it and and, and you can you'll find that the the people that are really into these genres get impatient with it uh and it's just it's it's one of it's one of the interesting uh sort of dynamics that comes out of you know studying how to have commercial success how do you get your product in front of people how do you tell the audience know what they're buying giving them a shorthand to to help break down that barrier between uh the product and the money that the the, the consumer brings to the to the market you know what i'm saying yeah and and i want to play our next song which is a song that that you picked out that is a weird collision of Lonnie Johnson, who's a city-sophisticate, extremely slick blues and jazz guitar player. I mean, he was doing duets with Bing Crosby's guitarist, Eddie Lang. When he wasn't playing with guys like Texas Alexander, who's kind of like a John Lee Hooker figure swept in off the street. I mean, this is a guy who does not keep regular time. This is a guy who doesn't really impose much of a form on his music and, and in a way is almost harkens back to field haulers. I mean, the, the, the song can't moan blues. I mean, let's just let people hear it. It's Texas Alexander and Lonnie Johnson doing can't moan blues. Texas Alexander backed up by guitarist Lonnie Johnson doing Camp Moan Blues. And you call that like sort of a collision between modernism and postmodernism and pre-modernism. I mean, talk about that a little bit. Like the blues in the 20s, we heard Bessie Smith and Louis, Louis Alexander doing it, and it's state-of-the-art. It's sophisticated. It's slick. And then, you know, and Lonnie Johnson comes out of that world. And Texas Alexander is Bama all the way. I mean, this guy is pretty much sounds like he's straight out of the fields. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, just before I make any further comment, I, I think the name of the song is Levy Camp Moan Blues. Good correction, my my bad. Levy Camp Moan so, Blues. And, so, and, and it is a moan, and, and it's an example of that kind of of, of uh, field expression. It's, it's in the way Wald explains, it, in the way if you kind of read about it in other places, it's it's a much more individualistic form. Uh, almost talking to you know, it's, it's the, the singer almost talking to themselves while sounding out their own feelings, et cetera. But, uh, you know, uh, reminding ourselves that the blues is probably something that has a relatively modern sort of presence in that time, right? We have already mentioned that it was something that was kind of developing at that time. It, that's, that recording is astonishing because it does have this 
you can you can hear kind of the 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 pre-recorded or the pre-recording era in the way he approaches his vocalizations and it's also something that's not really i don't think that that recording was something that was likely to be popular it wasn't something that was driven by uh audience tastes and desires at the time it was recorded and they there are a number of recordings between that involved lonnie johnson backing you know alder texas alexander and most of them have a much more typical guitar uh backing that that both provides melody you know fleshes out the melody but also gives a little rhythm a little kind of shuffle to it so that you could dance to it or what have you but in this instance there's none of that right it's this kind of free form call and response that you know, and, and Wald notes that there probably weren't many guitarists that could have done it as well as Lonnie Johnson. Uh, but it, it it has this kind of collision, this kind of throwing together of these two different styles. And Lonnie Johnson, um, it, it's almost, uh, uh, you know, he's making it up as he's going along, right? It, it, it's a, it, so on some level, it has this really new sound to it. That's how it sounds to me. I don't. It, it's entirely possible that there were people that had a history. There were, you know, uh, of doing hollers and moans and, and having guitar played with them that way. But there are not very many recordings of it like that. And as a result, it has this kind of uh, this timelessness to it. It doesn't sound like it comes from uh, an easy genre. It doesn't sound like it comes from uh, some trend that you know, that was going on at the time, et cetera. Yeah, it's, it's really a remarkable collision. And it makes me think of, you know, like somebody like Captain Beefheart, who, while a talented vocalist, is very eccentric. And mediocre musicians really struggled to play with him. But somebody like Ry Cooter, who's a virtuoso and open-minded, was able to accompany him brilliantly. And so somebody like Blondie Johnson brings both of the chops to play anything, but also the sensitivity to understand what Texas Alexander is bringing to the table. Whereas I think a lot, you know, your average virtuoso would have been just dismissive of Alexander and be like, I'm not going to play with this clown. Whereas somebody that's at that ultra elite level, like Lonnie Johnson or Ry Cooter can adapt themselves, recognize what the performer is bringing to the table and accompany that brilliantly. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a really, really fun listen. And, you know, the, this art struggles to sort of understand these things and, and trying to do it on their own terms, like, you know, which is the lesson Walt's trying to impart, is really fun. But you get into – there's always the potential for misadventure. And and I think one of the most interesting things, going back and listening to the conversation with Walt again, was his comparisons of the response – to the blues on the part of people like Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton who missed the joke. You know, Robert Johnson's biggest hit was Terraplane Blues. And he tells the story of being at the service where they put a, I think they put a gravestone on Robert Johnson's grave finally, or some kind of commemoration. And there was a service at the church. And so there's a mix of local African-Americans and then, you know, blues fans and white, you know, white folks coming in that are big Robert Johnson's fans and, and Elijah Wald's in the band there because they're the only musicians who showed up and he's singing Terraplane Blues, which is basically an off-color double entendre song. 
And that was the closest thing Johnson had to a hit in his lifetime. And the black folks in there are getting it. They're laughing at the dirty implications of these lyrics, whereas the white people are all very somber and serious and, and appreciating the blues. And, you know, he makes this comparison to NWA, which really hit home to me because NWA was the first black group that really broke through with the white kids in my hometown of Borger, Texas in the late 80s. I mean, we were, the the racist backlash of the 70s hit that area hard. And I had never seen white kids get into black music. I mean, I, a few of us were getting into Run DMC and a few things like that. And, you know, the Gap Band and Rick James would have hits that people noticed. And Michael Jackson and Prince obviously had an impact. But NWA swept the metalheads like nothing, nobody's business. And Wald's basic take is like, you either have to take that as comedy or it's just a bunch of aggressive people yelling about stupid stuff. And, and you know, uh, other writers, I blank on the author's name, but the guy who just wrote the, the book about Tribe Called Quest, he broke it down, you know, as NWA very cynically knowing exactly what would appeal to white boys. And he nailed it. You know, Ice Cube and company totally nailed that. And, and, you know, if you listen, on on one level, it is it's hilarious stuff, and 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 uh, you know, life ain't nothing but bitches and money. You know, we don't just say no; we're too busy saying yeah, and and you know, and yeah, there's all these white kids coming along and taking it seriously, just like there's all these white kids coming along post facto with Robert Johnson and taking the whole Satanism myth seriously. I mean, to the point that there's a Ralph Macchio movie about it in the '80s, and so. I, I just, you know, talk a little bit about this sort of trouble we can get into when we're crossing racial boundaries and genre boundaries, and you called it contextual abduction, I think. Well, I mean, I, I, I think there's a, a couple things there, and, and one of them is, is that obviously, uh, you know, there are different contexts that come from different sort of cultural milieus, right? And it can be difficult to read, uh the entire meaning that goes into a cultural product from one locale or from one group of people to the next group of people. I also think, especially in the United States, it, it, where race issues are involved, especially between black and white, uh, there is, there's tension that occurs, especially when, when white audiences, white consumer try to, or, or have a desire to, uh, consume black cultural product. A lot of times, it comes with the need to be serious and to to demonstrate, you know, that the the black culture is being taken seriously and is being valued, et cetera, et cetera. And and so that that solemnity almost uh, can get in the way of enjoying what is a long-standing tradition within uh, black culture, within the dozens, within you know, within African-American musical expressions, African-American stage presences, et cetera, the double entendre, et cetera. Uh, the, the other thing that I think that's, and I think this is part of why Wald tries to occasionally insert information for, in, in the narrative about, um, about blacks and whites uh, creating music together, playing music together, being influenced by one another, and showing appreciation for one another is that, you know, our individual artists, I mean, they're trying to, they're trying to find audiences that are as broad and deep as possible because that secures their financial success. And it 
it brings you know brings satisfaction to the more people that enjoy the music the more satisfying it is and in many instances the artists themselves are not particularly interested in helping to maintain racial boundaries they're not particularly interested in helping to maintain genre boundaries uh, and they would rather just bring everybody together as, as much as they possibly can. And so, you know, you have these instances in the book where, you know, like Elvis Presley is trying to explain his commercial success and his ability to enter the music industry in a successful manner. And he starts talking about being influenced by local African-Americans, you know, and he, and he, and he basically is forced by, you know, linguistic, convention and you know a lack of sophistication as far to like refer to all blacks you know like well the blacks were doing this and he has to refer to these individuals with whom he's had interaction with this this blanket term right and, and and then he says look i just did what they were doing and i put a little spin on it and then i presented it to the people over here in this segregated you know uh population of whites and they could consume it, right? And it's, 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 it's when you start looking at how race inter, interacts with genre, one of the things you notice is the artists don't tend to want to, to, to support that, but they're forced to deal with it, right? And, and the money end of it, they're much more likely to say, well, we have to be careful with what we present. So we want you guys to, you know, you African-Americans in the 1920s and early 30s to record blues, let's say, or, or you know, there's, there's a sort of bifur- uh, an artificial bifurcation that goes along with, with creating genre and creating product for varying markets. And that's how you end up having, you know, R&B and pop music when really they're all really essentially the same thing. But you, you know... Uh, attendance to social, certain social norms and, and racialized social norms can affect genre and it can affect how the artists and the audience interact with each other. Absolutely. And let's hear uh, a Tampa Red song. And this is with a guy that was billed as Georgia Tom, but who later became known as Thomas A. Dorsey, the father of gospel, who totally disassociated himself from his early work with Tampa Red. And after you hear tight like that, you might see why. Woke up this morning about to break up day, lay my head on the pillow. Baby's lay on tight like that. Free doom de doom, tight like that. Free doom de doom, baby, but it's good, honey, and it's tight like that. And Jane had a boy, his name was Snow. Broke all the locks off the hen house door, tight like that. Free doom de doom, tight like that. Free doom de doom, baby, but it's good, honey, and it's tight like that. And that was Tampa Red and Georgia Tom doing tight like that, which is just a classic example of the kind of double entendre that had driven sales of blues music and would go on to be a big part of R&B all through the 40s and 50s. And on, you know, it's just a big part of African-American culture that that's broken out into the mainstream at various times. But in addition to these racial boundaries that you can get, tangled up in there's also these distances of time and time can erase this awareness of what can really happen and and to me this whole project of of let it roll is an attempt to try to apply these lessons that ed ward and elijah wald have taught us of 
you know, follow the audience and try to look at things in the context of their own time. And don't just focus on the artists that are remembered, but look back at the artists that were popular at the time or artists that had some other kind of cultural impact, even if it wasn't mass popularity at the time, and try to see that in this broader context. So, um, you know, what did we miss? Like what, what, when you read the wall book and then listen to the conversation, what did you feel like, what, what did I miss? Is there anything out there glaring that we need to bring up before we wrap it up? Well, I don't, I, I think that, you know, between uh, your conversation with Wald and the conversation we've had today that we've, most of it has been covered. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm facing some, you know, glaring omission. Um, I do, I do think it's interesting that this is kind of a, uh, Escaping the Delta is kind of a popular book, although it does have footnotes and substantive footnotes. It's not just, you know, uh, footnotes of inconsequence. And it, and it has a certain sort of academic aspect to it. Uh, and, and I think it's important to note that he, he, he is applying a sort of basic academic just, you know, approach that historians take, which is to try and erase assumption and to trouble assumptions and to go back and look at it, at primary sources, contemporary primary sources, et cetera, to kind of see what was really happening, what was the actual context, not to be driven by uh, subsequent popular assessments. And there's also an element of sort of the anthropological approach, which is to try and immerse yourself in the culture and to sort of disappear as an observer so that you can most accurately absorb the practices and the cultural products of a given studied group, which is very difficult to do. And it's, you know, there's a lot of argument about whether you can actually do that. Um, I think that from the, from the standpoint of, trying to look at uh, cultural and technological innovations and, and productions and commercial endeavors based on uh, that culture and, and technology, et cetera. It's good to keep in mind, you know, that sort of historical approach and the anthropological approach. Uh, and that, you know, there are, there's a very well-known paper within anthropological circles where this, concept of deep plays is is bandied about and a deep play is basically this a set of dynamics and and value expressions within a group that are largely invisible to outside observers but that once you get immersed into uh the culture you can you start to see these deep plays going on and it helps you better understand the culture their values and, and the products that come out of those cultures. I think that paper was primarily interested in looking at gambling. Uh, I think it was cockfights in Indonesia. I can't remember. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. Cockfighting in Indonesia. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind for people in general, studying any kind of, of human endeavor and trying to assess what has happened in the past and see how it connects to the present and all that. And I think that, that Wald's book does a good job of popularizing those kind of efforts, you know, and talking about things that are uh, pretty complicated and easily obscured. 
For sure. And I'm looking forward to bringing you back for the next episode where I'm going to talk about Elijah Wald's How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, where he applies some of these principles to the study of the Beatles and Paul Whiteman. And, you know, an alternate title could well be popular music from Sousa to Sgt. Pepper, but he went with uh, the the pot stirring, uh, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, which <laughs> left, left a lot of people scratching their head. I know it lost Robert Christgau when I talked to Christgau. So anyway, looking forward to having you back on. And uh, it was Yuri Campbell, Dr. Yuri Campbell, and we've been talking about Elijah Wald's Escaping the Delta. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Yuri Campbell returns to ask, what did we learn from Elijah Wald's How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll? Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Escaping the Delta is available from Amistad, an imprint of HarperCollins, and can be found wherever fine books are sold. Liquid bleach, liquid bleach, Clorox makes clothes bright. But what about these cloudy wine glasses? Add glass cleaner to my cart. Adding Clorox disinfecting bleach to your cart. What? No, for glassware. Clorox can also make glassware sparkle, keep flowers fresh, and remove chocolate, wine, all your usual stains. Rude. Clean anything with the versatile Clorox disinfecting bleach. Discover more hacks at Clorox.com slash learn. As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer. Send money to your loved ones back home the fast, easy, and reliable way. Visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started. And your first transfer fee is free. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985, FX Gain Supply. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 